For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and an inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Angie Spoke podcast. Today we have a very, very special guest join us, Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth is a best-selling author and the co-founder of the Omega Institute, the renowned conference and retreat center located in Rhinebeck, New York. Her newest book, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, The Human Story Changes, reveals how humanity has outgrown its origin tales and hero myths and empowers women to trust their instincts, find their voice, and tell new guiding stories. Elizabeth's work is recognized internationally for her workshops and conferences in wellness, spirituality, creativity, and social change. She has given two popular TED Talks and is one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, a collection of 100 leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. It was such an honor to talk to Elizabeth Lesser. We really dug into women and voices and stories and power. She shares a lot of personal story as well. And make sure you stick around to the end to hear her hustle, where she shares a new technique for meditation, which is absolutely gorgeous. Please welcome the amazing Elizabeth Lesser. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the show. We are so happy to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you two. Thanks for having me. I was counting the sleeps to get to this day to talk to you. So that's how excited we are. So Elizabeth, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, would you like to give us a, a couple minute intro of who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm like most women. I'm a multitaskeress. 
he started, co-founded a uh, retreat and conference center 40 years ago. I was 12, I like to tell people, but actually I was 22. And um, we are one of the country's largest conference and retreat centers that focuses on wellness and spiritual practice and business and creativity and social change, Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. We've been shuttered for a year, like so many businesses. So that's a whole thing. And then I'm also a writer, an author. I've, I've written several books, four books. And I also have done a lot of the kind of work that you do, speaking with interesting thought leaders from all over the world, whether on stage or more recently, virtually. So I love what you do because I relate to it. So yeah, that's me. So we really would love to discuss your book, Cassandra Speaks. So much of it really spoke to us as our like everyday experiences. Elizabeth, would you share with us the story of Cassandra? It was not one that I knew knew about, but I think it's so powerful. And now she's like this little character in my mind that I have to remind myself about. I would love for you to share that story. Yeah, when I first began writing my newest book, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the story, the human story changes. That's the full title. I didn't know I was going to call it Cassandra Speaks. I I also didn't, you know, I'd heard about Cassandra. It's sort of a a word we've heard of, but I really didn't know the story very well. And the book is about a lot of the stories that are kind of under our skin. And even though we may not know them, even though we think What has Adam and Eve got to do with me? What does Pandora have to do with me? What does Cassandra have to do with me? I don't even know the story. But I started looking into these stories and reading them and reading different translations of them and different texts. And as I was learning about the story of Cassandra, which I'll tell you in a sec, I happened to be reading about it while I was watching uh, the televised trial of Dr. Larry Nasser on television. That whole trial was televised. And it was just as the Me Too movement was really burgeoning in the country. And I was transfixed by this trial of these young women, these young, mostly gymnasts, but also soccer players and other kinds of women athletes, who over 30 years had been treated by Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the doctor for the United States Olympic Committee and several colleges and universities. And he had been molesting these girls for 30 years. And hundreds of them had told their parents, their coaches, all the way up to the universities and the United States Olympic Committee. And no one had believed them. No one had done anything. And they took the word of this one man over the word of these young women's experiences. And the difference with this trial is that the judge, a woman, Judge Aquilina, decided against most of the tradition in the courtroom to let any witness who wanted to speak, to speak and be heard. And so 125 girls spoke at that trial and they told their stories and she didn't interrupt them. And they told them over like five days and Larry Nasser had to listen to every single one of them. It was powerful to see the way they were healed 
just being listened to. Mm-hmm. So as I was watching that and reading about Cassandra, I was like, oh, wow, this is the story. This is the main story. So Cassandra was a princess, the most beautiful daughter of King Priam and Queen Hecuba in ancient Greece. And she really was mostly interested in her spiritual life. She she wanted to just never marry and be part of the cult of Athena. All the men and all the gods were after her, mortals and gods, because she was just so alluring. And one god in particular, Apollo, the son of Zeus, wooed her the most. And he finally got to her by offering her the gift of seeing into the future and prophesying it. And that's what she wanted. She wanted to be able to know the truth about everything. She wanted to see into the future and to be able to tell her people, you know, do this, not that, beware of this. So she accepted the gift without knowing that it came with the price of having sex with Apollo right then and there, and then being his mate. Well, when she found out that's what he wanted, she said no, but he'd already given her the gift. And instead of taking it back, Apollo put a curse on her. The story goes, he spat in her mouth a curse, which said, you shall know what's going to happen to your people, your parents, your brothers, everyone, the whole country, but no one will believe you when you say it. And this is what happened to her. She foresaw everything. She saw, foresaw the Trojan War. She foresaw her family dying. She saw, foresaw her city in ruins, and she would say it. And they would call her crazy and they would call her a witch. And she was eventually driven mad by knowing the truth, but not being believed. And I thought about those girls with Larry Nasser. So many of their mental health had been ruined by knowing the truth, saying it and not being believed. In many ways, that's even worse than the molestation because you feel crazy. And I thought, well, that's not just the story of these girls. It's all of our stories, whether you're in a meeting at work and you're being called hysterical or do you have your period or all the things that people say to women or assume about women. When we say something maybe that the world doesn't want to hear and they don't take us seriously. So that's why I called the book Cassandra Speaks. So Elizabeth, this um, story, I just, I knew of it vaguely, but had never thought of it in terms of my own lived experience until I read your book. So thank you for providing the context in this in this particular time in history for this. Personally, I grew up as a really young environmental and climate change activist. From that perspective, it was so meaningful for me to see the story because it made sense for like so many of my experiences started to make sense of just feeling like I can see the future and see the truth and see what's happening. And that how on earth are people unable to listen to that? Mm-hmm. And, and so I spent, I spent the better part of two decades chasing this journey of compiling every credential I could find so that I would be taken seriously so that someone would listen to me. And I got to the point where I had, like I had them all. And then it didn't, it didn't matter. It still didn't matter because the structural issues at stake are so large and, and sort of who controls money and power, which is, I think, something else we'll get into in our conversation where structurally um, stacked against me and the millions of other people like me, that it, it just resonated with me on that level as well. Yeah. That story 
thank you for sharing that. That story is perfect because it's not just one kind of knowing the future and not being listened to. I mean, I know that you are a lawyer and a, and you went to school in environmental science. I was reading about you. And that is such a Cassandra story. You did everything you could within the structure. But I imagine you're still seen as someone who's like, calm down, little lady. We've got this kind of thing. And it can make you crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's what it's a big part of what led me into to the company that Sandy and I co-founded, which is the software company. Because, and I don't want to take up too much time with this, but but essentially it was emotionally unsustainable to be plowing forward the way that I had been and that so many other activists and advocates plow forward with when you're, when you're just, you get to the point where you're exhausted emotionally and intellectually after, you know, years and years and years of doing something and then just being heartbroken by the inadequacy of the strategies and tactics, right? And so for me, so much of working and doing advocacy work and activism was rooted in fundraising. So that led me to figure out where's the power and where's the money in society. I was fundraising constantly from people who had exited tech companies. (laughs) And I just thought like, well, that's where in our day and age, this is where the money and the power is. And so like, I'll leave the academic and, you know, attorney accolades over here and I'm going to go to where the power and the money are. And so that's what led to the business that we have now. Um, And we're still figuring it out, but it just, it's, it's this emotional exhaustion that I think people get to. And I, and I think in, in the example you're sharing with the Nasser trial, it's a much more, I think, visceral, human, deeply personal individual set of experiences, but but I think it goes both ways. Like those, No, I think yeah. the story you told is the one that most people can relate to mm-hmm. and a very important story to tell because the most emotionally wrought stories wake us up. Yeah. But sometimes they make you feel, yeah, but my story isn't so bad and I've been supported and like but but most of us are plowing through the heartbreak and the exhaustion of what you're talking about. And it's valid and critical. And I'm so inspired by the two of you that you didn't give up and just say, oh, well, I guess this is the way it is. You're like, no, I'm creating something else. I'm jumping this whole ship and, and going somewhere else. And I love that. I love that. Hmm. That's so interesting that you say it that way, because in some ways it was like, I don't want, I don't like, I can't deal with you. I can't, the world, the systems, I'm going to just like come over here and work with Jenny and we're going to create our own thing and do our own thing, you know, do our, it do it our own way. And now I feel like we have to like turn and face the world and the systems that are mm-hmm. there. And now it's like a new fight to be heard. And even at as simple as a meeting, right. Just to be like, I, yeah. <laughs> I can, can it just, Like that, all day long. (laughs) I hear you. And if there's anything I want to talk about in this book, it's that. It's like, okay, what do we do? Do we just start yelling as loudly, aggressively, and macho-ly as the people? Sometimes. But if that's all we do, you know, like Nietzsche says, be careful when fighting monsters, you don't become one. Mm -hmm. It's a slippery Mm -hmm. slope. You don't even know you're becoming one. 
And then all of a sudden you're in the power and the money and it's kind of yummy and you don't want to give it up. So I'm interested in women uncovering a different superpower to be heard, not just the old, you know, dude way of being, not that yeah. I'm not mad for men and love men and I'm married to one and have sons. And I'm talking about the archetype of the kind of power brokering that's going to wreck the world. Mm-hmm. We don't find a way, not just to get our foot in the door, but once we're in there to create a new room. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's, it's such an interesting tension because I called Sandy this morning to basically share this, the exact the exact what story of my mm-hmm. fear of becoming the monster that I'm trying to fight because you just get tired of not being listened to, right? So then you resort to, okay, well, this is how I can be heard. I can turn into, a, you know, this force of nature that I see examples of all around me. Um, but part of, I think, our superpower is, for, is that we have each other. And so I don't know if that, I, I'm curious about your, I know you are co-founder of Omega and how that played into sort of your your ability to grow the organization. Like Sandy, for me, is a, like we have each other as a touchstone so that, and we also try to surround ourselves with inspiring, amazing people and thinkers, right? So your book obviously is informing the decisions we're making in our company. We can check each other, right? So is this, I'm, I think this is happening. Are you seeing this happen? Can you reflect back to me what your experience was in that meeting or in that in that situation. So we have each other. And, and, and in your case, I'm just wondering, did that, how was that for you having co-founders? Was that something that you were able to kind of use to draw strength and, and um, lessons from, or h- how did that play out for you or inform your work now? Is this a seven hour podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it is today. <laughs> totally um, willing. <laughs> well, sort of, just as amazing and educational and fortifying, but for the opposite reason. My mm-hmm. co-founder was my husband and now my ex-husband. So talk about the kind of partnership that both balances, but also was a launching pad for me to finally find my freaking voice. Because now, first of all, remember, I was in my 20s when I started it. And it was the only thing I'd ever done. And we were a business way ahead of its time, not knowing what we were doing at all. And because we were sort of at the far edge of a wave, and many entrepreneurs will relate to this, we took off way faster than we had any right to be doing. We were we went from like a tiny thing to a sort of big thing, then to a huge thing within like a decade. And that early ride, those first 10 years were learning on the fly. And as a young woman, I had tremendous imposter syndrome, which we can get into, Real, really did not know my voice at all, and was definitely deferring constantly to the men in the organization, which was everyone except me. Um, and I got my sort of feminist chops in the fire by trying to run a business and follow some sort of interior voice, follow my heart even a little bit. And I didn't have what I now call womances, you know, bromances. Well, 
you know, the bros, I didn't have my woes. I didn't have romantic partners like you two are, where you could be like, oh my God, this happened to me today. Does that ever happen to you? What should I do? Like, what would you have said? I didn't have that. And if I had had that then, if I had even known to get it, that would have helped tremendously. So the answer to your question is, is this a good thing that you two are having? Is this like part of the new way women lead? Yes. I didn't have it then. It was years ago. I have it now. Um, and I know to get it and I know never not to have it, but I didn't then. So I wrote this quote down or like this question. I love this question. This is from your book. What would it be like for humanity today if women had contributed to the theories and stories about what it meant to be a powerful person? Mm -hmm. And that question, like I have never, like it just, I mean, this is all the chapters at the beginning of the book are all these different stories from ancient texts, whether it's Judaism or, or, or Christianity or Greek mythology, whatever. It just struck me how we just don't even see what's right in front of us, right? Like all, like, I'm in this um, feminist uh, coaching group and someone posted a quote and I don't actually know who the lady was that said it. She was a student at Cambridge and she had an anthropology professor holding up a picture of a bone with 28 incisions carved in it. And this is often considered to be the man's first attempt at a calendar, she explained. And then she paused as we dutifully wrote this down. My question to you is this, what man needs to mark 28 days? <laughs> I would suggest to you that this is a woman's first attempt at a calendar. Mm-hmm. And this is like the whole part of your first, I was like, we just always assume that the man created it, the man said it, the man did it, the man thought it, the man drew it, right? The man recorded it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like... And most of life. the times, it is the man who recorded it. Like mm-hmm. the, the historian Sally Wagner, she says, history isn't what happened. It's who tells the story. And we know this very well right now. I mean, look what's going on. We're speaking during the second impeachment trial of ex-President Trump. And today his lawyers were speaking and yesterday the Democrats were speaking two entirely different stories about the same events. So what will history eventually say that whatever gets said becomes history and History was told through the lens of men, the Greek myths, Homer, all of the Greek philosophers, the Bible. Now, if you're a Bible literist, you think it fell from the sky, but I don't think it did. Uh, The story of Adam and Eve, which I break down in the book, Pandora. These are all the idea men had about women, about why women were born second. Oh, but they were the first to sin. This, this story about women that we were thought of, we were in an afterthought, but we were the ones who brought evil into the world. Almost every um, Western culture has that story. Why? Because it's true? No. Because for some reason, men needing someone to blame for the, for the evil and tragedy in the world, oh, we'll, we'll blame it on those people who look different from us who act different from us, if we had been telling the story or if we both had, let's not go into women should have told the stories. No. What if every human being 
added her and his voice to what it means to love, what you do with conflict. What should we do when conflict arises? What should we do with sharing equally with other beings? I think the stories that guide us would be very different if women had had an equal say. Even our science stories, even our more recent stories, you know how we say, under stress, human beings fight or flight, the fight or flight. We all believe that, right? Because studies were done in the 40s and 50s by a man named Walter Cannon at a university. He brought people into the lab and measured their hormones and their blood levels when they simulated stressful experiences. And their reactions were either to fight or to flee, not just to run away, but to detach and to Mm -hmm. go into a detached way of being. Well, in 2007, a woman researcher at UCLA, Shelley Taylor, Dr. Shelley Taylor, noticed for the first time that only men had been used in those studies. Because in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even until 10 years ago, only men were used in any kind of medical studies, psychological studies. So she brought women into the lab and did the same experiments. She has a wonderful book called The Tending Instinct. And she came up with this phrase, under stress, some humans, women, Don't fight or flee. That's not the first reaction. It's to tend and befriend. Women under stress often will tend to the most vulnerable or they will create circles of befriending. So it's like you come home from a hard meeting and instead of fleeing or, you know, detaching, having a beer and not saying anything, you call six of your best friends. And you're like, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe what happened today. And then you get input and you feel supported. And and so what if from the beginning of time, the instinct to tend and befriend was actually deeply respected and not just, oh, yeah, kindergarten teachers do that, but not the mighty soldiers, you know, who said fighting and fleeing were so awesome? Yeah, that's one instinct. What about tending? How about we give most of our money not to the military, but to schools or hospices or nurses? You know, that sounds like, oh, that's really nice. But it's not nice. It's actually incredibly intelligent. Mm -hmm. So that's why those old stories and all the stories, you need to say, really? Is that really what happened? Or is just one side of the story? Mm-hmm. So I am so interested in your perspective on you have so much to say about history. And part of what our message is, what Sandy and I are doing in tech is trying to speak publicly about the fact that those who are working in the space that we are are creating the future, right? Like they're actively playing such a massive role in dramatically changing the way we live, work, organize, every aspect of human life is touched by what's being developed right now. And and that space is very, very sparsely populated with women or other kind of diversity at all. And how this is, I mean, it's it's, it's just recreating the problem that we've already been creating as a, as human civilization for thousands and thousands of years. We're just, instead of maybe we're making slight progress with respect to 
elected representation in certain countries and leadership in, in certain kinds of roles and industries. And yet there's this whole world that's being created um, largely by this tiny, tiny segment of the population. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about that or a message for our listeners about how you think that might impact human civilization. Just a small question. Well, the reason I think history is not actually looking backwards. To me, it's all about looking forward because yeah. it may be going faster now, but there's nothing all that different. You know, whether it's the earliest technologies of the bone and the calendar or the weapons or the printing press or the automobile or the telephone, you can look to history to what happens if only a select group control the evolution of human consciousness and behavior. So I love to look at history as a way of saying, do we really want to repeat this? Look what happened by leaving women and people of color and other marginalized communities out of the conversation. History gives me a backbone and an activist zeal to stay in there, to get my foot in there. And once I'm in there, to call the boys out and and try to talk about values what what do we value what for connectivity why speed why toward what end what are we doing is it all just for money and fame or are there other values that that we all need to come together and 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 create a, a constitution of technology about what is good for the community and what isn't, so that by the time we get to where we're at with Facebook and Twitter now, where it's being used for the destruction of democracy and other forms of human behavior, we might have um, we might have looked at what's going to happen, which brings us back to the story of Cassandra. Mm -hmm. So. Women and other sensitive human beings get their law degree, get their environmental degree, they get into the world, and it's so abhorrent, people just drop out or become the monster they were fighting. So I think, I guess the real question is, how do we remain true activists? And by activists, I mean people who love the world and love humans and want to give their life for the betterment of it all. How do we do that in a way that doesn't just recreate what's going on? You know, there are very few activists. You can say them. We all know them. Gandhi, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, you know. There's very few who sort of walked what I call both the activist path and the inner vist. I, I coined that phrase, innervism, to me, which is um, working on yourself, even as you work to change the world so that you don't become the monsters that we're fighting, so that you are love made visible, as Khalil Gibran described work. Work is love made visible. How do we do that? How do you penetrate a world like the world of technology? 
how do you penetrate it with love and service? If I had the answer, I'm sure I would be being hired right now by every tech company. So I don't have the answer, but I do have extreme confidence in my feminine perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think other people know better than I how to manage the corporate world. But I know how to manage the inner world. And that's what I can talk to. I can't talk to like, well, you should actually go to Duke because they have a program that's going to, you know, like I'm not in that world, but I'm in the world of strengthening your deep female core, getting over your imposter syndrome, finding your voice and sticking to it and knowing when to push and when to love. That's what I No. (laughs) I have been dying to ask you this question. Do you consider yourself ambitious? Yes, very. I'm ambitious. I'm aggressive. I'm loud. I like leadership. I want more. But I also know that there's a shadow side to all of that. So I'm constantly working on ambition for why, aggression for what end. Loudness when, silence when, love when, fierceness when. I'm constantly trying to find that that razor's edge. Yeah, it's so interesting. I figure that's what you were going to say based on having read your book. We ask a lot of our guests this question and we've surveyed our community and almost no one will consider, will admit or, or tell us that they think of themselves as ambitious. And it's so interesting to me because of the kinds of people that we work with and talk to, that's such an infrequent concept to identify with. I think I understand your perspective on that from having, having read your, your book, but I, I want to emphasize how unusual it actually is. And, yeah. and it's just not, not a common thing. And Sandy and I came together in our like origin story that we tell it's I, I brought, like I started the company just a tiny bit before she came on board. And I, I remember after I met Sandy, I came home and I told my husband that I've finally found another woman that's as ambitious as I am. Like it was like this mad, respect and like deep connection because we both I think saw each other that way and it's so rare that's so beautiful that makes me want to cry I love that about you too it's why I wrote the book for Mm -hmm. women to claim ambition and power there's no mystery why we don't claim those words who would want to call herself Mm -hmm. ambitious and powerful if power has come to mean corrupted power And ambition has come to mean getting in the way of someone else to get what you want. That goes against all our instincts, which are more connective and more wanting to tend and befriend. So I'm more interested in redefining what ambition means and redefining what power means Mm -hmm. so that women can say, hell yeah, I'm ambitious. I want to create a beautiful world. And I'm going to do everything I can to do it. Hell yeah, I want power. Who doesn't want power? Come on, power just means your capacity to shine, to know what your soul's purpose is in this lifetime, and to to create a lane where you can sing your soul's song 
as beautifully and loudly or quietly or whatever way you want, because we all want that power to be ourselves. Yeah, I think that's what your book has done for me is like made it okay to want the things and sort of put this perspective on why I believe the things I've believed or the way I've defined words because of history and just to question it all, to take a look at every belief that I have. Why do I have it? Do I want to keep it? Does it empower me or not? And change it if I need to, right? And I think just like the book is so beautiful from beginning like early, early human days to today like just take a like zoom out and look at this and why it really explained to me some of the struggles I've had and now I'm like hell no like yeah I do like I will verbally and Jenny have I've always always said this about ambitious ambition and power but now even more so right and I want to bring I want your work and hopefully our work to bring people with us, like, come, let's do this. Let's create that word. And don't be afraid to ask for power. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to maybe have a contrary um, opinion on something and be okay with it. Right. And you know, even people who aren't afraid to do that, like I tell a story in the book, I started a conference 20 years ago called women in power for this very reason, because people, myself included, and women and men felt so uncomfortable when you put those two words together, women and power. And at the first conference, I decided to invite a few speakers. I thought, you know, 100 people would come and that'd be it. And I invited Eve Ensler, who created the Vagina Monologues, and Anita Hill, and that the, the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings were still kind of fresh in the culture's mind. And a couple of other women speakers and like hundreds of people came and the next year we did it again and thousands came. So this question of why are we so uncomfortable with women and power? And so many of the speakers didn't like being associated as powerful. And one year we had all of the living women Nobel Peace Prize winners. And you might think, oh, how how did you fit them all on the stage? Well, there were only like six of them at the time. And two of them weren't allowed out of their country. So like there were four. (laughs) And one of them, Jody Williams from the United States, who won the prize for identifying landmines as weapons of war and having them outlawed. And she would walk across fields with, with still live ammunition landmines to to prove a point to the like warlords you got to get rid of this or i'm going to be blown up and they would have to pull her back don't walk there and she'd be like see and she was being interviewed and somebody said so what do you consider your superpower or something she was like well, i'm not powerful i don't like the word powerful and the interviewer said what do you mean you know, you won the Nobel Peace Prize. What do you mean you're not powerful? I don't like the word. I don't like the word. Mm-hmm. So we have to change what power means, what you do with power, so that women feel comfortable saying, yeah, I'm ambitious and I want power. Yeah, I love that. Just before we wrap up, I would just love for you to say a few um, words on imposter syndrome. Because people will go, yes. And then when they go to do the work, they'll be like, oh, I, I just don't, I can't I be know. that. Pri- I'm not ready. I don't have enough experience. I should. Ooh, yeah. Oh. 
So let, let's assume that everyone knows what it means, this idea mm-hmm. that, uh-oh, I'm going to be found out as the fraud I know I am, so I better work harder, get that degree. I don't know. I don't know enough. That kind of thing that keeps us from asking for the raise, getting the job, putting our name as the co-author, the whole like false humility, real humility, the confusing mix of I don't want to have a big ego, but I did it. All the stuff that that these loud voices in our head. So I want to go right to, well, how do we work with it? The most important thing to me has been being honest about it in yourself. So I have been pretty successful in my life. I've written best-selling books. I have worked with Oprah. I've been you know, I produced many shows for her. I had my own radio station on her Sirius XM station. I started a business, blah, blah, blah. I still am totally nervous every time I speak. I was nervous before getting on with you. I I still have that voice in my head that I don't know enough. I haven't done enough. I'm in my 60s. I still think, well, I'm just kind of new to this. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd just hearing myself say it. But I have heard everyone from Michelle Obama to Maya Angelou to all sorts of well-known women say, yeah, I'm still nervous too. And that helps me. It helps me to know that I'm not the only idiot like this, that it's baked into women to think that we don't have what it takes. Why wouldn't it be baked into us? We're still under the thrall of those stories. Eve shouldn't have listened to the snake. If she did, everything went down, you know? Cassandra was cursed for wanting to speak. Like, it's it's in us. It's in our DNA, this idea that we don't know enough and we're imposters. So knowing that you're not alone, there's a reason why you feel this way, that helps me. And then the other thing that helps me a lot is to stop making assumptions about the people who do speak up, that they know anything more than me. And often they're men. And it's just happens to be baked into boys, little boys. You can do anything, go out and get it. Um, The world was created by your kind and for your kind. And that's not their fault. That's not little boys' fault. That's what they get, almost on on a cellular level. So... Those are two ways that help me find my voice and speak up. But I want to just reiterate, the opposite of the imposter syndrome is not being an aggressive asshole. (laughs) There's some beautiful middle space that we have not found yet. And I feel it's an exciting time because women are having an enormous effect. You may not feel it in in the high echelons of the Apple and the other companies you were talking about that are technological phenoms right now. But all over the world, women are infiltrating the way we speak in meetings, the way we give space to those who haven't had a voice. I think the world is changing. I think it's because women are speaking up. And I think it's a glorious time for women to find our voices, to get over our imposter syndrome, and to, to create something new. I love the idea of middle ground. I'm going to use that one. 
At the end of every episode, we ask our guests to share with our listeners something that's bringing you joy right now that they could perhaps learn about and use themselves and a tool or resource that can help them hustle in their career and business. Well, they can't use what's giving me joy, but they can use something similar in their life. My, I have uh, grandchildren and grandchildren are awesome because you get all the love and none of the responsibility. It's just fantastic. So, and they're simple. It's a simple joy. That joy I want to say to you is the most simple things can bring us joy. Don't think it has to be something you buy or something cool or what other people, what are you doing? What are you doing? Usually it's like a second cup of coffee or a sunset or Right now I'm looking at snow outside my window. Like, make your joy be something free, available, and simple. So that's one thing. And then my hustle. I've been teaching my, to myself and to others recently a new meditation that I came up with. I call it the do no harm, but take no shit meditation. <laughs> and you know how in meditation... You see all the statues of the really strong backbone. This isn't because meditation should be torturous. Your body, when you sit up strong and you feel your backbone supporting yourself and you take your seat, you have this feeling of like, I belong here. My backbone is strong. It's protecting me. You know, the, the phrase, I got your back. You got your own back. And if you do that, but at the same time, you keep your front super soft, super open and sensitive because your back is strong. This is the middle ground that we're talking about. You can be both strong and fierce and soft and kind. I call it the do no harm, take no shit because I was my sister's bone marrow donor and she was very, very sick and she was a nurse. And she lived a year after the bone marrow transplant, but sadly she died a couple of years ago. And I wrote a book called Marrow about it. And when I was cleaning out her office, she was a nurse. And you know, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And women and that whole tend and befriend nature, the caring nature, it's what we must keep, that soft do no harm front. We must keep that. But when I was cleaning out my sister's office, I found this needle point she had made that said, do no harm, because she was a nurse, but take no shit, because nurses take a lot of shit. And I thought, that's that posture of the strong back. I'm not going to take any shit anymore, but I am going to stay open and soft and kind. I'm going to do both of those things. So when I sit down to meditate, I tell myself, do no harm. So I soften my shoulders. I breathe into my heart. I feel that soft, open, tender place. And then I strengthen my back. And I'm like, the reason I can stay open is because I have a strong back and I'm not going to take any shit. So that's my hack. Do no harm, but take no shit. It is the perfect 
way to end this episode. So thank you for sharing that. So where can people, so first of all, everyone does need to go by Cassandra Speaks, Speaks When Women Are Storytellers, The Human Story Changes. And then otherwise, where will they go to find more about you and your work? They can go to my website, which is elizabethlesser.org.org. And all of my, you know, Instagram and Facebook, you can click through there and ways to reach me, my other books, etc. I'm feeling like this might be, there may be a part two with you. If you're <laughs> Great. I'm on. <laughs> Thank you Thank so, you so much, much, Elizabeth. Thank you. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free.